So, I mean, there's all kinds of forgetting. This one that you mentioned is so super common and it plagues people every day. So there's the, where did I put my phone? Where did I leave my glasses? Um, where did I put my keys? Where did I park my car? And people freak out and think that their memory is failing and they're headed down the road to Alzheimer's. And 99% of the time, I, I bet everything I own that this is not a memory problem at all. This is a symptom of distraction. Mm -hmm. So we cannot form a memory of anything if we don't pay attention to it first. Hey friends, welcome to The Good Life with Michelle Lamoureux, a show for women in midlife who want to live happier, healthier, and more meaningful lives. I'm your host, Michelle Lamoureux, a self-love coach and the author of design a life you love. And together we're going to be doing just that. Each week I bring on world-class experts, best-selling authors, leading entrepreneurs, and also do solo casts with the intention of inviting you to get connected to what you really desire from your life. This show is produced with love every week. There's inspiration and actionable tips in every episode because I want to see women playing a starring role in their lives instead of living on the sidelines. Be sure to join the Good Life Community newsletter over at thegoodlifecoach.com for more inspiration and tips to live your best midlife. And make sure you're following the show on your favorite podcast player. I'm so glad that you're here. Hey there, it's Michelle and welcome back to the show. I'm thrilled to say that Lisa Genova is back on today to talk about her most recent book, which is a nonfiction called Remember, The Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting. Lisa's done an amazing job of distilling all of this complex information into an easy and enjoyable read with lots of stories and examples so that you can understand how memory works, how to improve your memory, what normal forgetting looks like. We'll also discuss that in today's conversation, as well as the distinction between normal forgetting and forgetting as a result of Alzheimer's. And at the end of the conversation, we talk about preventative measures that Lisa recommends that are easy to do, that don't cost money, like getting the proper amount of sleep that really make a huge impact on your brain health and your ability to remember. I really love this book and recommend it to anyone who wants to learn more about their brain and how their memory works. And just a little bit more about Lisa's background. She is the New York Times bestselling author of Still Alice, which became a major motion picture winning Julianne Moore an Oscar. She's also the bestselling author of four other fiction books that all cover neurological conditions. And Lisa's work in the world is so aligned with creating empathy and understanding for those conditions. Lisa has her PhD in neuroscience from Harvard and has a TED Talk with over 5 million downloads called What You Can Do to Prevent Alzheimer's. I'm also going to link in the show notes the two other interviews that I've done with Lisa because they're soulful and inspiring, and I think you will enjoy them. To access the show notes for today's interview, as well as all of the links that I just referenced, just head to thegoodlifecoach.com. So much great information today, and I hope you enjoy the show. Lisa's always such a pleasure to listen to and learn from. So here we go. 
Welcome back to the show, Lisa. I'm so thrilled you're here today. Yay. Thank you, Michelle. So happy to be with you again. Well, congrats on your first nonfiction book, Remember the Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting. It's a gorgeous cover. Absolutely love it. And um, so easy to read and hopeful. And I feel like I learned so much, but I wasn't overwhelmed. I think, you know, when it comes to memory, people worry very easily. You know, the second you can't remember the name of an actor or, or what you just, you know, read a month ago or the details of a movie or something, you like can start freaking out. And I think you, there's so much great information in here to help calm people down. Oh, thank you. That is exactly the intention behind this book. I wanted it to feel conversational and not threatening um, because, you know, there are academic textbooks written about memory and this is not that. Um, <laughs> the intention behind the book was really to help people understand what's going on when you experience normal moments of forgetting. So, that you don't then go into shame or panic or anxiety, worrying that this is the first step toward the road to Alzheimer's. Yeah. It's no, this is the price of playing poker because you're human. We have a human brain whose memory system is amazing yeah. and wildly imperfect. And so there are glitches that you're going to experience whether you're 25 or 65. And so mm. I wanted to help folks just I just wanted to normalize forgetting. This yeah. isn't always a problem to fix. And it's something that we can either learn how to roll with and not be upset about, or there are ways that we can talk about the different kinds of, you know, tip of the tongue or why I walk in this room or we're trying to remember to do something later, like how we can, how could we can get better at that? Um, solving those or how we can sort of maybe outsource the job outside our brains to give us some help or how we can just sort of go, eh, it's going to happen. Right. No supplements for this. This is just part of being here. And it's okay. <laughs> That's right. And actually it's funny that you said um, that you wanted it sort of it to be kind of like a conversation or whatever. You know, I really felt like I could hear your voice in my ear, I was reading it, maybe because I've interviewed you two times. I literally could hear your voice, but it's very like a friend who's incredibly bright, happens to have their PhD in neuroscience, who can break down all this complex information and just say, hey, let's take you through all the things you need to know so that you're not worried about it. And let's talk about prevention because, hey, there is some reality around numbers and statistics. And I've got some data that can help you with that. Like I walked away after reading the book feeling like, okay, like I get it. And okay, it's okay to Google, you know, a name if you forget the actor in the movie. Like you don't have to stress and go, oh my goodness, if I can't remember, this is like the worst thing ever. Yes. Yeah, so thank you. Yes. There's all kinds of tips in there. I, I'm very much in favor of brain health. What can we do to support our ability to remember new things now, to retrieve memories we've already made, to prevent Alzheimer's in the future? And how can we understand what's going on right now? So, right, like there's this misconception out there that like, if I have a word stuck on the tip of my tongue, like I can't remember the name of the actor who played Tony Soprano and the Sopranos, <laughs> like I have to come up with it on my own or I'm going to be weakening my my memory. I'm going to be, I'm going to get digital amnesia. And this is just a, a misinformation. This isn't true. So my coming up with the name on my own is not going to then prevent me from forgetting where I put my phone later. It's yes. not going to then prevent me from having another tip of the tongue in an hour. 
So it doesn't weaken your memory whatsoever. And you don't get any trophies for coming up with it on your own either. And so it's funny because young people who've been tethered to their devices since practically birth yep. don't hesitate in outsourcing the job to Google. So and true. So they don't suffer in tip of the tongue like yeah. we do. It's so true. there's this misconception that we have to do it. We have to suffer through the mental pain and come up with it on our own. But there's no there's no data to support that that's helpful in any way. Tip of the tongue, especially for a proper noun, yeah. is a normal glitch in memory retrieval. It's just a byproduct of how our brains are organized. Um, think of it like proper nouns, <clears throat> so names, movie titles, cities. These are like neurological cul-de-sacs they're like, there's only really one way to get to them. And it's ultimately like, you know, no, no matter how many neural roads and streets you're driving down to get there that are linked to it, ultimately you're in a cul-de-sac, which is kind mm. of tough to, to get to. Whereas other nouns are more like in intersections of busy streets. There's a million ways to get there. So it's tough to come up with names and, um, and Googling them is okay. It's the yeah. quickest way out of that tip of the tongue state. Yeah. And there's, there's no shame in that. And there's no shame in that. I think that's yeah. going to let people go, okay, good. Next time I'm just going to Google it and I'm not going to stress myself out. I right. was playing the game with my friend. I couldn't remember Elon Musk's name at all. We were driving, I was driving to school and I said something. She's like, would it help if I give you the first letter of his name? And she's like, E. And then I could get it. But but the fact that I felt the need to like, I was like, don't tell me, don't tell me, you know, it, why do we well, do that? It can feel like a sort of, <laughs> like it's so close, right? Like, like I know close. all these things about him. I know what he looks like. Totally. I can tell you the name of the book he wrote, or I can, right. there's all this information. So you're like, why, why? did I not get to, it's like, cause it's the house at the end of that cul-de-sac. That's it's so hard point. to get there. And so um, it oftentimes we come up with another word that's close. So I don't know if this happened to you with Elon, if you thought, is it Evan? Is sometimes it, it sometimes wasn't with that. Come no. up with a, a word that's similar, but not it. Yes. And um, in psychology, they're called, it's kind of a rather unfortunate name, but they're called the ugly sisters of the target. <laughs> and when you focus on an ugly sister, that makes the situation worse. So, because every time now you're trying to come up with the name, you only come up with the related word, the ugly sister, which lives in a different neurological neighborhood. So yeah. you're, you're, you're searching the wrong neighborhood and, and the word you want lives in another part of town. And so this explains why. So a lot of folks will say, you know what happens when I stop trying to find the word It pops in your like mind. much later, it pops into my consciousness. Totally. Right. Always. And the reason that happens is because you've stopped perseverating on the ugly sister. So you, you've left that wrong neighborhood. Like you just kept search, searching all those houses over in that wrong neighborhood. <laughs> but then when you call off the hunt, you give the correct set of neurons on the other side of town a chance to get activated. And that's why it's like, oh, there it is, Elon Musk. It's so fascinating. The brain is so fascinating to me. So maybe I was thinking, could you just give us like a brief tour of our, of our brain? Because I know that, you know, we don't have to go too deep, but I, I want to really help people understand the hippocampus and where like the memory center is and then how the neurons sort of are fired and wired throughout the brain. Cause I thought that was interesting. Could you kind of give us a tour, like just a very basic tour of the brain? Yeah. And so interestingly, um, 
you know, memory isn't stored in any one place. There's no Mm. memory bank. There's no memory cortex, right? So we have a visual cortex in the back of your brain where we process Mm -hmm. vision. We have an auditory cortex, like that really sort of sits behind your ears um, in the temporal cortex on each side of your head. Um, We have a motor cortex on the top of your head. We're all, that's the origin of all movement. So movement doesn't begin in your muscles. It ends in yeah. your muscles. It, the, the signals and the, the desire and the program and the choreography for movement starts in your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but memory is not located in any one place. And so there's different kinds of memory. And we can talk about that because those are organized very differently, depending on whether we're talking for your memory of stuff you know versus the stuff that happened versus how to do things, what you plan to do in the future. These are all very different. Um, But in terms of creating a lasting memory that you can consciously recall, Mm -hmm. that has to go through a part of your brain that you mentioned called the hippocampus. So what the hippocampus does is it sort of, it, it knits together or links together all the disparate little elements of what you will think of as a singular memory. So in the book, I used an example of, okay, if I want to remember my first day of summer at the beach, I'm there with a, you know, a bunch of friends and their children and our kids are playing soccer on the shoreline and it's a beautiful sunset and we're listening to Lady Gaga and we've got wine and, and oysters and s'mores and, and, oh, one of the kids gets stung by a jellyfish and we happen to have meat tens or meat tenderizer and that gets rid of the sting. And so that's my memory of my first day of summer. Um, It's my memory because that's what I paid attention to. So those are the elements, those are the sensory details, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the emotion. Those are the elements that captured my interest and attention. If I were one of the dads, I might've noticed completely different things, right? Maybe he never noticed the Lady Gaga song and he was all about Tom Petty and he had a beer, not wine, and he hates oysters. So he didn't taste like his memory will be different. Um, But mine begins with what I paid attention to. So Lady Gaga has nothing to do with jellyfish or oysters or sunset or my kids playing soccer, but those things that are unrelated become related through my hippocampus. Hmm. My hippocampus is taking all of those neural activity, all of those neurons. So the stuff that I saw in my visual cortex, the stuff I heard in my auditory cortex, the the smells and the tastes in my olfactory um, system, what I felt about it in my limbic system, all of those neurons that don't live anywhere near each other can create neuroanatomical structural and neurochemical connections to each other. So they, they send out um, branch-like structures called um, dendrites and they, they wire together. Mm. So now when I think of any one of those elements, oh, the time my daughter got stung by a jellyfish, the rest of the memory can get activated because those neurons become connected. The hippocampus um, continues to repeatedly activate the elements involved in the memory until they sort of become self-sufficient. And so it's a connected neural circuit that when one part gets activated or triggered, it can trigger activation of the rest. So it's a full memory and it feels like a thing. Like I remember that night. So rather than like those different sensory experiences being one-offs, it's a collected whole. 
So that's a memory. It doesn't live in one place in your brain. The hippocampus is the one that that uh, makes sure that it lasts more than the present moment. Otherwise, it just comes and goes and you don't remember it. Okay. So it's so interesting. So two things. Does the hippocampus sit in the middle of the brain? Where where is it? Where is it? In, within yeah, the it's deep in the brain. It's it's yeah. sort of in the middle, like sort of near that those those temporal lobes. It's okay. Sort of like and in order. There. Okay. And in order for those lasting memories to have those, is it because it fired up so many different parts of the brain that it then can hold that? Meaning if only one part of the brain was engaged in that memory, like a smell, okay, will it not form the law? I don't know if I'm asking this in a way that makes sense, but is it because all these other parts were fired and wired that like it created those? Yeah. So the hippocampus okay. is just about about continually stimulating that pattern of neural activity that represents what you experienced okay. and what you paid attention to. So if I, you know, if I met someone and they, you know, they were wearing a perfume, um, that smell can later trigger the memory of that person because mm. that smell and that person, what that person's face looks like, how that person made me feel, um, information about who that person is. Oh, that was the CEO of this company I met, you know, at that conference um, back when we used to meet people. <laughs> right. um, the smell <laughs> can then trigger the memory of that person. Or a lot of folks have, like, let me put it this way. Um, you know, have you ever walked into an elevator and someone's wearing a perfume and you instantly remember, you know, a boyfriend or a girlfriend from 30 years ago? Totally. Um, or yeah, a song. Or a song. Oh my God. Songs are amazing at this. Right? So songs, right? So this is great. So songs also tend to get repeated a lot and overplayed on the radio. Yes. So repetition reinforces memories, right? So if we, we're reactivating that circuit over and over and over again, so we'll memorize all the words. So we have the sound, we have the language, we have the melody, we have the emotional connection, right? Totally. Like, oh, that song makes me remember that time when I was in love or where I lived in this different city, like, right? So yes. I lived in Washington, D.C. for a year when I worked at the NIH. And the songs that came out on the radio that year always make me think of living in D.C. So um that's that's those different neurons in different parts of your brain have this unique connection based on your experience. Okay. And I if I just wanted to clarify. So you said that the neural pathways store memories throughout the brain though, but then if it's long term, it's in the hippocampus. I'm just trying to understand. Maybe it's yeah. Now the hippocampus is just a facilitator. Think of okay. it as your memory binder. It's like it's the little workhorse that helps you helps that those helps those neurons which previously had nothing to do with each other now have a link they're now connected potentially for decades and they could be stored anywhere though in, anywhere any right because you're what you see is in the back of your head what yeah. you hear is in the side of your head yep. what you feel is deep in your brain what yep. you smell is somewhere else all of these different parts of your brain have been activated by your experience and they had nothing to do with each other unless they become they come become connected through this pattern of activation that the hippocampus helps sort of stitch it together so if i now smell if i now smell that perfume that those neurons that that um, encode the experience of that smell are now also linked to a certain person and a certain feeling about that person and stuff I used to do with that person. So that's 
all been linked together, you know, decades ago by my hippocampus. Yeah. And it just comes right back up like instantly. Yeah, so now activation of any one part of that memory can then activate and light up the whole circuit. And, and that's the remembering all of the details. Maybe over time, only some of the details get activated because others are maybe weaker. And so we only remember some of the memory and not the full memory. But but if someone were to remind us, oh, but you, do you remember this part of the memory? Like, oh, yeah. it wasn't just that she was stung by a jellyfish. Someone else got pinched by a crab. <laughs> oh, I remember that too. Right. right. That, you know, it wasn't, you know. That's right. That's like getting together with your. Cursing over the years. Right. Getting together with your college friends and remembering the, like, there was a text thread I was just on. It was like, remember this club? And it was like, wait, no, uh, we used to go to this one. And Everyone was yes, sort of add, can, adding to the memory, and then it was creating a clearer and clearer picture for all right, of us. You can f- sort of feel the different the different parts of that memory getting bigger, like because it's becoming it's it's parts that had been dormant and not activated can still get activated over time if they haven't been if they haven't disappeared. Um, yeah, a friend of mine from elementary school recently um, texted me a photo of our second grade class picture <laughs> and we were having a ball remembering who all the names were and all the faces and different memories of those kids. And, and there were a couple of kids we couldn't remember, yeah. like no matter what we, there were, were not enough triggers for us to come up with who these people were. Right. And so, you know, it's possible memories left alone for too long can be physically erased from your brain that can happen. So those, those connections can physically retract and disappear um, if they're not activated enough over time. Well, this, so that's in terms of forgetting, you talk about what normal forgetting looks like. So, you know, coming out of the grocery store and it's like, where did I park my car? Mm -hmm. Uh, Right. So this you say is normal though. So can you talk more about what normal forgetting looks like and how it's not something to freak out about too. Yeah. So, I mean, there's all kinds of forgetting. This one that you mentioned is so super common and it plagues people every day. So there's the, <laughs> where did I put my phone? Where did I leave my glasses? Um, where did I put my keys? Where did I park my car? And people freak out and think that their memory is failing and they're headed to uh, down the road to Alzheimer's. Um, and 99% of the time, I, I bet everything I own that this is not a memory problem at all. This is a symptom of distraction. Mm-hmm. So we cannot form a memory of anything if we don't pay attention to it first. Yeah. Okay. So there's this great study that I'm going to ruin for people now, but I, it's just too fun not to describe it. So there's this study that psychologists did um, on inattention blindness. They had people passing a a basketball um, in a circle. And and there's a video of this. And the subject is asked to count how many times the basketball is passed. And so you're concentrating on the ball and you're watching the ball and you're watching the ball. And then the video's over and they're like, okay, like, did like the question is basically is like, did you see the gorilla? And you're like, what are you talking about? There's no gorilla. I have no memory of a gorilla. There's no gorilla. I just I, the ball was passed 12 times or whatever the answer was. And they're like, watch it again and look for the gorilla. And mother of God, there's a person in a, like a six foot tall man in a gorilla suit that walks through the middle of the circle of people passing the balls. So we cannot capture and 
and make a lasting memory of anything unless we noticed it in the first place. Right. And to notice something, we have to pay attention to it. Right. So, you know, we we didn't pay attention to we, where we put our glasses down because we were doing five things at once. Mm-hmm. Or we parked the car and ran right into the store without taking a moment to notice where we parked. Um, this happens to me. I use this example in the book. When I drive from Boston to Cape Cod, about an hour into this trip, I cross over the Sagamore Bridge, which is this really big four-lane, can't-miss-it structure. And so often, about 10 minutes later, I'll wonder, wait, did I already go over the bridge? But so this isn't, you know, I my eyes certainly saw it. I didn't close my eyes while I went over the bridge. The information went into my brain, but I couldn't make a memory of the, of going over the bridge because I didn't pay attention to it. So because I've driven over this a million times and I was probably lost in thought or listening to an audiobook, my attention pulled elsewhere. The experience of driving over the bridge never was made into a memory. So I have no, I can't recall it literally not there. So we can't remember what we don't pay attention to. That's a a major takeaway for folks. So when you're panicked and like, oh my God, I've forgotten where I put my keys. No, it had nothing to do with it. You didn't involve your memory system. You didn't pay attention. That's the first step. You write, and you actually, there's a, I literally noted it, page 189, (laughs) memory requires attention. It was like, it seemed like such an important (laughs) takeaway. That was like a note that I was like, wait, normal aging, forgetting, you know, normal aging. Yeah. We forget because we didn't pay attention. I mean, that's key. That's key. So that's, and people can relate to that. You're busy. You come home, you have, like you said, the bag of groceries, but you're thinking about what am I making for dinner? Yeah. Right. And so two things, one, it can help solve the problems where you can have a moment where you remember, Oh, Lisa told me to pay attention. So I'm going to notice where I put, put something, or if it's like parking a car, you know that you need to pay attention to it. And if you don't have time to pay attention, it's always okay to externalize your brain. So I can take a picture of it with my phone. I do that. And my phone can do the business of paying attention for me, yeah. right? So yeah. I don't actually have to, and I don't have to remember that now because something else has done it for me. Isn't going to make me dumber. Isn't going to ruin my memory for other things. I'm just outsourcing the job at the moment. It's totally okay. But if you don't pay attention to something, you're not going to remember it later. So when you can't find it, you don't have to freak out and think you're getting Alzheimer's. You can put the blame on the correct cause. Oh, I'm not paying attention to what I'm doing. Right. So getting more present is going to help you with your perceived, you know, sense of being able to remember. Um, there's also the, you know, why did I come in the room? Right. I, mm-hmm. I, I've walked into the, the living room. I don't know why I'm in here. <laughs> what am I doing? And people think you're, you know, losing your mind. Um, This is very common. It has to do with two things, actually. It has to do with prospective memory and context. So prospective memory. Yeah, which you talk about in the book. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is your memory for what you intend to do later. Mm -hmm. So it's the, oh, I need to go uh, drop off the dry cleaning. I need to um, go to the bank. I need to call my mom. I need to take my medication. Um, Oh, I need to remember to book a flight. Oh, I need to remember to do whatever later. And our human brains are terrible at this. Terrible. So unless we have the right cue in place at the right time, we're going to forget. So like, you know, for folks who need to take medication before going to bed, if you have the medication bottle tucked away in a medicine cabinet and you're not going to see it, you're probably going to forget to take it. But if you put it next to your toothbrush, because brushing your teeth before bed is a well-ingrained habitual Mm pre-bedtime habit. Yeah. 
then you, you're like, oh, I see it when I'm supposed to see it. I'll remember to do it. But most of us forget what we intend to do later. Um, and this is a normal glitch in how our brains are organized. Everyone. So like doctors prior to checklists, again, externalizing your brain. <laughs> this is horrifying, but surgeons would leave surgical instruments inside the bodies of their patients and close them up because mm-hmm. they would forget what they plan to do later, which is take the scissors out of the body. Yeah. Um, pilots do not rely on their perspective memories to remember to put the wheels down before I land the plane. Externalize your memory, use a checklist. So if I am in my bedroom and I'm like, oh, I, I, I need my glasses. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read before bed. I forgot my glasses. I think they're in the kitchen. So my memory is go to the kitchen. And when you get to the kitchen in the future, get your glasses. Mm-hmm. Now I walk to the kitchen. I'm like, I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> So this is how bad perspective memory can be. It's literally seconds later and I can't remember. This is why, by the way, like marketing companies take advantage of this, right? All the time they're like, oh, sign up for a free trial. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like the meditation app or the subscription to this or that. And you're like, okay, if I don't like it, I'll just remember to unsubscribe. And we forget and then we get charged for the year. So now I'm in the kitchen and I don't know why I'm in there because my perspective memory is terrible. Like it isn't all humans. But one of the ways I can help myself is I know that context plays, in a, plays a really big role in our ability to remember things. So when I created the memory of I want my glasses, I was in my bedroom and that's where I read every night. And so I've got my bookcase there. I've got the book I'm planning to read. I've got the habit of I read in here. All of those cues are very easy. I go to the kitchen. There's no books. It's like, am I hungry? Am I thirsty? Because <laughs> those are the here? kitchen cues. Right. Um, and so if <laughs> right. I were to walk back up to the bedroom, which is what I did. is So I stood in the kitchen and I was stumped for minutes. I don't know why I'm here. I gave up. I went back upstairs. And the second I'm surrounded by those cues, they do the job of triggering the memory. You wanted your glasses. If I'm in the – so if you walk into a room and you don't know why you're in there – Either go back to the room you're in, actually physically go there, or go there in your mind's eye. It will help deliver the cues that will trigger the memory of what you intended to do. So So that'll help you. I think that's going to make people feel so much better. And you even give the story where you go to the market to buy milk to make waffles and you come home without the milk. You got a bunch bunch of other things, things, but I forgot the thing I went there for. Because you didn't maybe write a list. And even though you you just assume you'll remember the milk. Yeah. Perspective memory is terrible and everyone, our brains aren't designed to do, to remember something in the future. And I think because future is such a new evolutionary construct, um, that our brains just weren't designed to handle it. And so you, you have to write these things down. So to-do lists, checklists, calendars, pillboxes, all of these external aids, this does not mean you're wimpy or that, oh, if I, again, if I just if I take the right supplement, if I exercise every day, if I, you know, do memory exercises, then, then I, I won't have this problem. So, no, you will. Because right. You're for, right. So, perspective, right. For perspective memory. For perspective memory. You're going to forget to bring the gift to the party back when we used to go to parties. <laughs> right. like, unless, so right. I also say in the book, like my boyfriend and I do this thing where if we need to bring something, we put it in front of the door. So yeah. that we literally have to trip over it to leave the house because otherwise we're going to forget to bring the tickets, the bottle of wine, the thing I planned, the, uh, the bill I planned to mail, all the stuff. So totally. having the cues available at the right time because our brain can't remember what it plans to do later. 
This is um, so good. Having the cues available helps. So writing it down. And forgetting is normal too, meaning the brain creates space. Like it can't hold everything, right? It can. So this is this is such a misconception too. So people okay. are like, we only use 10% of our brains or like our brains are going right. to fill up. And so we need to get rid of stuff to make room for it. Right. No, you've got like a hundred trillion connections available to you. You, Your brain can handle everything you want to learn. And so this is where like, you know, so while- It's about so the far, attention piece. It's more about what you want to remember versus yeah, it's all about totally. the intentionality around wanting to remember something. Yeah. Whether so you're studying you for an example. example of okay, so please. Like, so far, I've just been talking about how memory is kind of a dunce, right? It's right. all these things. And it's so it's so problematic and it can't do the simplest thing. I can't yeah. remember from 20 seconds ago what I intended to get in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And yet our brains can remember- anything we put our minds to. So, you know, there's an example I use in the book where there's a 69 year old retired engineer from Japan who decided he wanted to learn, he wanted to memorize (laughs) Pi and become a world champion. Yeah. He memorized over a hundred thousand digits of a non-repeating patternless number because he wanted to. And so he's not a savant or a mathematical genius or you know, any he's he's got a healthy sixty nine year old brain, and he did that. Um, we can memorize all kinds of stuff. Like right now, I'm I'm in the middle of memorizing a TED talk, so I can get off book and speak for seven minutes um, without without worrying about saying um or, or forgetting what I want to say. Right. Um, we can memorize all kinds of stuff. We can remember. Um, we can learn how to do anything. So memories for how to do things, right? So we are muscle memory doesn't live in your muscles. That's a misnomer. Muscle memory is memory for how to do things. And that's in your brain. That's in your motor cortex and your memories for how to do things, um, are remarkably stable over time. So this is where the expression, it's just like riding a bike, mm-hmm. right? You can not do something for years, but if you learned how to do it once, you, like I didn't ski for over a decade. And then when I got back on skis, I was like, do I still know how to do this? <laughs> yes. Your brain remembers. And then your body executes what your brain tells it to do. Um, but we can learn how to do pretty much anything. I mean, I might not be able to, you know, kick a soccer ball, but like Abby Wambach, but I can learn how to play soccer. I can learn how to play guitar. I can learn how to type. I could learn how to ski. I can learn how to water ski. I can learn how to juggle. Like we, our capacity is not limited here. Mm. We can learn anything. Um, and learning is, 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 is the act of learning is remembering, right? So when you learn something, you're memorizing, you're learning, you're creating a memory for something that you will recall later. So um, memory is astounding. We can learn infinite quantities of information and we can learn how to do anything. So is it, so is it not true that we only use 10% of our brain? That is not true. true. So why do people think that? No, I don't know who started that. Somebody started it and then people just go. People ran with it. It's not true. It's not. So are we using all of our brain then? All of these different centers you're talking about? Use all of the brain. Um, You don't use all of it all of the time, right? So if I'm feeling an intense emotion, I'm using a certain part of my brain, my limbic system and associations. I think Um, that's huge. If I close my eyes, I'm not using my visual cortex. But if I open them, I am. So, 
But I'm glad you clarified that. I think I even heard that we only use 5%. I don't even think I heard 10. So all of those people are (laughs) all lying to you. (laughs) You use all of the brain. So funny. But but here's the other thing. Your brain is not just a, um, a static blob that's only like, how do I want to say this? Your brain is changing all the time. So when I say you use all of your brain, all of your brain is, is a different thing tomorrow than it is today. Yeah. So every time you learn something new, you're creating more neural connections. So you have the, these neurons, but these neurons, this neuron can connect to 10,000 other neurons. And those connections change based on my experience. And, and so um, the amount of your brain changes all the time. It's so interesting. Well, they, there was also that people believed that as a child, you could create new neural pathways and that that stopped at a certain age, but that is not the case. Well, both are not the case. So not only, yes, we create new neural pathways throughout life. Right. Um, it doesn't stop that, after being a certain, like, you no, know, neural 10 pathways years old are, are created every time you learn something new, every time you're exposed to a new experience, you're mm-hmm neurons are making new connections and your hippocampus is saying these two associations um, are now a thing. Like these two things that were never associated are now connected neurologically. Um, But we also create new neurons. That was the dogma um, a long time ago that you only have so many neurons. um, And, and then as an adult, like that's it, you'll never make a new neuron. You'll never have new nerve cells. And that was debunked in the nineties. And especially get this, the part of your brain that create, has the most neurogenesis, the most birthing of new neurons is the hippocampus. Yeah, throughout your life. And what's scary is, ready? So chronic stress yeah. inhibits neurogenesis in your hippocampus. You will have a shrunken hippocampus if you're chronically stressed. Hello, pandemic. Yeah. Um, this is why a lot of us probably feel a little foggy, you know? Huge. Um, yeah, like chronic stress is impairs your ability to form new memories. It impairs your ability to retrieve old memories. Um, it shrinks your hippocampus. Um, so meditation, yoga, mindfulness, things that sort of, I can't get rid of the pandemic or all of the what ifs, but I can change my reaction to them and hopefully save my hippocampus. Because we've seen those studies that meditation actually um, prevents that shrinking and will actually increase the volume of your hippocampus. Exercise also increases the volume, volume of your hippocampus. Staying socially and cognitively active increases neurogenesis in your hippocampus. So the idea is that a bigger hippocampus is, you know, a more powerful engine for creating memories. Um, so that's you have a stronger memory. That's huge. Yeah. I remember I, reading that piece in the book about stress, I think was it 60, you're like 60 something percent more likely to get Alzheimer's if you're chronically stressed. Is that true? I don't want to. Yeah. I don't have that number at my fingertips. I want to see the wrong. No, it's it's your, um, if you're sedentary, um, you're, you're way more likely to develop Alzheimer's. Um, and we know that. Yeah. too many studies out now between aerobic, regular aerobic exercise, um, decreasing your risk of Alzheimer's by about half. And if you're sedentary, like if you have a, the APOE4 risk factor for Alzheimer's, that's going to shrink the size of your hippocampus and increase your risk of Alzheimer's unless you move around. Unless you so move if around. you're sedentary and have APOE4, that increases your risk. But if you move around, you're okay. 
So there are things. So let's actually talk about that. So when normal forgetting is now suddenly not normal, like what, what do the early stages look like and what can we do? Let's talk more about what we can do to prevent decline. Cause again, we were focused on the hopeful with this book. And um, when you talk about uh, meditation, is there a particular kind of meditation that's proven like mindfulness? It doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. It doesn't so much matter. And I, and I really want to make that point actually, because a lot of folks will think, well, I have to have a certain meditation app or I have to look a certain way while I meditate, or I have to be at a, you know, a Buddhist retreat to do it. Right. And it's like, right. I got to go to Nepal and, you know, no, it's it's literally about creating a little, little moments of stillness so that and noticing like how much of your thoughts are running and the worry and the stress and the busyness that's that's going on in your in your brain and in your body and then just notice it and notice it if you give it a minute it will actually still yeah and and that's really helpful to our brains and, and our bodies um to to quiet everything for a moment and it, it just gives your um a, a felt sense of what that is to not be in constant chaotic motion. Yeah. And then when life throws chaos at you, uh, oh, there's a long line and I'm in a hurry or, oh, uh, I might get COVID-19 if I go to the post office, like whatever it is that you can go back to your breathing and your felt sense of what it means to be calm and still now in the face of what isn't calm or still. Right. Um, and so that's really helpful because we can't get rid of the stressful world. Um, but if we can find a way to be calm and still while chaos swirls around us, we will um, not feel the biological detrimental impact right. of chronic stress in our brains and bodies. So that's super, super helpful. So yeah, there's a big difference between normal forgetting and forgetting due to a neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's. And I do talk about that a lot in the book. I also don't pull any punches with, you know, people want the magic bullet, right? People yeah. want me to say like, well, tell me the list of supplements and what, what you know, the pills to take or what to do so that I, I don't age, so that I my memory doesn't get older. Yeah. And the truth is your memory is going to get older as you get older. Um, you know, just like the skin on my face, um, I'm going to age, you know, I can do what I can do things, right. I can sleep well and manage stress and I can take care of my skin and I can look good for 50, but my 50 year old face looks older than my 20 year old face. And so likewise, like that man who memorized a hundred thousand digits of pie at the age of 69, amazing. amazing, but he would have been able to memorize more if he'd put his mind to it at 29. Um, so we do age. And what that means is that processing speeds slow down a little bit. So you can kind of feel this like at 50, I can feel sometimes where I'm like, it's, I, I got to hold on a sec. It's coming. <laughs> um, that can happen. Um, you know, retrieving information can be slower, but for the most part, you know, more, right. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't go by the way of the collagen in your face. So, you know, the, the knowledge you've accumulated, all of those memories, they, it, 
you don't lose those unless you have Alzheimer's. So you should still know the stuff, you know, um, you don't, the stuff, your memories for what happened, um, are as intact and as inaccurate, inaccurate as they are in a, in a 20 year old when you're 60 years old. Um, but it, it, just, it generally feels a little slower as you age, but people who, again, who are in their fifties, they start to mistake the everyday moments of forgetting that they blew off when they were 30 because you're 30 and you're young. And true. You I wouldn't even think twice about it. Deal. True. Yeah. But yeah. if you're 50 and you start, you, you start to think that the, you, you, it's, it's all psychological. You think, oh, this is a sign of dementia. So part of the book is to help get rid of all of that anxiety over the normal stuff. Yes. And then it's like, well, tip of the tongue is super normal for proper nouns. So I can't remember the name of that city near Miami. Oh, I can't remember the name of that, that actor in that movie. Um, that kind of thing is normal. But if I start to regularly like, oh, what's the, the, the thing I used to write with? Oh, what's it called? What's the thing I used to write with? Yeah, oh, that's pen. That's, yeah. that's different. Yeah. Um, and so pay attention to that. And, and again, I tell folks, um, you know, we're not afraid to be in conversation with our, our general practice physicians, our primary care physicians over heart health, right? Um, I want and, and hope for folks to be able to ha- be in conversation with their doctors about their brain health, about their cognitive health. So yeah, if you're like, I'm having trouble coming up with everyday words, like, oh, the, the, the thing I use to carry carry my wallet in the, the thing, what is it? The thing, you know, your purse, your ba- you know, like if that's happening um, on a regular basis, that's please talk to your doctor. Hey, this is going on. Yeah. And if it's nothing now, it's nothing now, but it's a good baseline even to have this conversation. And then a year from now, is it worse um, or is it gone? Um, also ask yourself, am I sleeping enough? So if we don't get seven to nine hours of sleep enough and the sleep data are so so compelling and clear on this. You will wake up the next day not having consolidated the information you learned yesterday. So all of the hippocampus is doing most of its job while you sleep. Mm. So all of that stuff that you learned all day, all the stuff you experienced, you know, it's 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 being worked on while you're awake, but it is locking itself into a lasting memory while you sleep during very specific phases of sleep. Um while you sleep, you're also clearing away metabolic debris. And part of the metabolic debris that accumulated during the business of being awake is a protein that can, when it piles up, lead to Alzheimer's. So that happens while you're asleep. Um, And so if you wake up sleep deprived, if you didn't get enough sleep, you're going to have leftover metabolic debris in your brain. You're going to not have consolidated fully the memories that you made the day before Mm. and you're going to be tired. So you're not going to be able to pay attention today as much Mm. as you would. Right. So what do you need to form new memories? Attention. Attention. So you're going to walk through the next day with a kind of amnesia. Yeah. Like a little Um, foggy. And so it'd be very foggy. And so if I'm having trouble coming up with words, Oh, but wait, I only got four hours of sleep last night. So maybe don't panic and think that this is Alzheimer's. Think I got to, I got to get a handle on my sleep habits. I got to yeah. do better. I got to stop binge watch, binge watching Netflix till 2 a.m. <laughs> or stop worrying through the night. Um, so sleep is super important to, to 
you know, be mindful of what's going on with your sleep because it's really, it's so intimately involved in your memory. Um, So yeah, Alzheimer's forgetting is very different. It's not, oh, where did I park my car? It's, I don't remember what my car looks like. Yeah. It's very different. It's very different. And is that again, all, is it because of degeneration in the hippocampus? Yeah. So Alzheimer's begins in the hippocampus. It begins and in it, the hippocampus. It's, it begins as sort of like a molecular war. And so the actual degeneration and cell loss doesn't happen at first. You're experiencing symptoms even before that happens. There's just enough of a war going on that those neurons can't work. They, they can't function. And so it's the hippocampus that's compromised at first. And so this is why the first symptoms of Alzheimer's are I can't remember what you just told me. Um, I'm going to repeat myself over and over again because I don't remember that I told you this because I can't remember. I can't lay down new memories. Oh, wow. So the present moment just keeps cycling through and I can't, I can't hold any of that because the hippocampus is, is, is not functioning. Yeah. Is it a plaque buildup though? Is it like a barrier between those neurons or is it not so much that? You can think of it that way. It's a, it's definitely more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah, like amyloid plaques like accumulate in the space between neurons and the synapses, and yep. and that is creating a, a physical barrier. But in addition to that, there's a, it's interfering with signaling, and there's a there are molecular um, cascades going on that are you know going haywire and not yeah. accomplishing what it needs to accomplish, and the and the neurons are breaking down. Yeah. So I know there's no magic pills. You talk about, you know, eating a Mediterranean diet and doing, getting great sleep, quality sleep, not just sleep, but quality sleep, Um, you know, learning new things, anything else. I mean, are there any treatments out there right now or nothing on the horizon? For Alzheimer's. Yeah. For Alzheimer's. These are preventative stuff we're talking about, right? And preventative stuff is absolutely the key. It's, it's not really sexy and it requires something of us every day. Yeah. I actually like to think of that as a really, a big plus rather than a minus because Mm -hmm. every day you now have a, a new chance to prevent Alzheimer's every day. So any sleep that I haven't gotten in my life is already water under the bridge, right? Because I've been sleep deprived for years at times, right? I was breastfeeding children and pregnant and working Mm -hmm. in grad school or whatever. But here I am today. I don't have Alzheimer's today. So what can I do today to help prevent the, you know, the accumulation of amyloid plaques and how to, what can I do today to prevent me from getting Alzheimer's tomorrow? So it's, it's every day is a new chance to do something for your brain health. And so that's exciting to me because it's always available to you. So um, what does it look like for you, Lisa? What do you do? What are your preventative measures that you do? Gosh, from everything you read, I mean, I imagine you're on it. I mean, you know what to do. (laughs) Yeah. And it's helpful for, again, to not think of the, uh, these things as, as depriving yourself of anything or that it's hard, but like every little bit that you can do, um, it's going to make you feel better today too. Mm-hmm. So these are all things that are good for your heart that will help you prevent Alzheimer's. So I make sleep a priority. I really do. And it feels good to get enough sleep. It really does. So I, you know, I don't, I don't, st- I used to stay up till midnight every night. Um, and I don't anymore. I, I get to bed between 10 and 11. Um, and I get, at least, I get eight hours a night and that's nice. You do. 
No hormones waking you up because I'm finding the perimenopause is like creating a new barrier of like, wait, what's this go? What's happening? I can, you know, I'm not breastfeeding anymore, but you know, we got new hormones. That hasn't hit me. That the that hasn't. I just wake up. No, no massive like whatever sweat (laughs) or anything. Just all of a sudden, I'm awake. I'm either too hot, too cold, and I'm like, why? Yeah, that's definitely happening to some of my girlfriends. Yeah, Uh, and so. Again, be in conversation with your doctor. Yeah. I don't think I'm getting enough sleep. What yeah. can I do? Um, you know, maybe there's melatonin that you can take it again. Don't just pop melatonin. Like there's a certain time. Um, there's a rhythm to this folks. So you have to you know, be in conversation with your doctor about what you can do to yeah. help get your, your body regulated so you can be sleeping well. So I prioritize sleep. Um, I eat well. I don't eat perfectly. So I, I still like cookies and ice cream and, um, but I, I primarily eat a pescatarian diet, uh, Mediterranean diet, whole foods. Um, so every day, you know, so I just had a smoothie before I talked to you and it was banana, lemon, apple, spinach, coconut milk, and peanut butter. Nice. Um, so I, I try to make sure every day I'm, I'm eating brightly colored, fresh foods, um, stress levels, try to get mindful of being still and calm in the face of what's stressful, right? Yeah. Not to try not to worry because worry isn't going to help anything. So to be mindful of when I'm feeling worried or anxious and like, okay, I can reset. I don't, let me relax. Um, exercise. Um, I miss the yoga studio. I miss being in the world. Like, the community part of exercise. I miss that. Um, so my favorite thing to do is dance. And I used to take a dance class once a week. Uh, my dance teacher, uh, Sarah has recorded herself doing some of the dances. So I do those every day at home. So I have a Peloton. I do that. I try to mix it up so that I don't get bored, go for walks when the weather's nice with my dog, just getting out there and moving, just try to move around every day. Yeah. Um, is really, really good for your, your whole body wants that. It's good for every organ system in your body for you to move. Completely. Uh, so, you know, I, there are folks who are uh, now taking all their Zoom meetings on a treadmill or on a um, physio ball, um, trying not to sit all day. We sit, we sit too much. Yes, we, we do. We do sit too much, especially now. I, for sure, I find that. Um, and it happened to, and during the pandemic. I noticed, I, I think it was on the heart health app that comes with the iPhone. The At some heart, point yeah. I noticed that it said, you're, you're walking a thousand steps less than you did this time last year. And I'm like, oh, that, <laughs> that would explain like the seven extra pounds. Totally. Um, yeah. So that's hilarious. Just, yeah. Like moving around, um, makes a difference in, in your your body's and your brain's health. So I try to move around and, you know, I live in Massachusetts and the weather's been cold and I can't wait for it to warm up because it's just so much more inviting to be outside and and moving around more. Totally. Um, I'm so grateful for you having written this amazing book. I think it is going to give people hope. Um, I'm wondering if there's any closing thoughts you want to leave the women listening with today, just if they walk away with just like one thing from this conversation um, or something specific from this conversation? Yeah, I think that, you know, this book is all about what your relationship is going to be with your memory. And I think that 
a lot of us have had like a really bad relationship with our memory. We're afraid of it. We're ashamed of it. We're judgmental of it. Um, we, we're just, we, we're not, we don't understand it. So I'm hopeful that, that your listeners walk away with the notion that memory is both incredibly important and to lighten up about it a bit. So like, it's important enough that it's amazing and you can remember all kinds of anything you want to remember. And so to be in awe of it and to be grateful for it and to therefore take good care of it, because there are all these things we can do to take care of our memory. But then I also want you to realize that it's a bit of a dunce and it's not meant to do everything. And it's so imperfect. And that if we can let ourselves off the hook and not be you know, so hard on ourselves when we forget things that are normal, if we can be a little gentler and more forgiving and understanding of, of these everyday lapses in what is normal for a human brain to forget, then I think that we'll experience a lot less unnecessary stress every day. And because if you're going to stress about your memory, you're going to create a memory problem. Right. For self-fulfilling so, yeah. prophecy, right? The worry. Right. Yes. Yeah. So I just, that's the biggest take home message is that if you can understand how memory works and why you're forgetting some of these things, you can come to the realization that, oh, this is normal. I'm okay. Yeah, for sure. And where can people learn more about um, where to buy the book and where to follow you, Lisa? My website is lisagenova.com and I am on Facebook and Instagram as author Lisa Genova and I'm there all the time. So if you want to be in conversation with me, please come see me there. Thank you for the work you're doing in the world. So grateful for you and your time today. So nice. This is third episode together. (laughs) I've not had anyone on three times. So thank you. Oh, so honored. I always love chatting with you. Yeah, such a pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life. That is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So if you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can do that right now on your phone. And please do consider leaving a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. It's actually how more women can find the show. And I really want to grow a community of women who are loving themselves and living full on. So thank you as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.